Christ and that the Father is glory and that Christ is the
Sorry, muted it. My bad. I'll read all that again. No, I'm just going Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you this morning uh, that we have uh, the privilege to gather together in your grace. Uh, the, the freedom in Christ to uh, worship you uh, in spirit and to worship you with our voices and to submit our minds to your word. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would freely and humbly recognize that it is by your grace that you've given us the desire to do these things, that it is by your grace that these things will further mold us into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we celebrate the opportunity that we have to do these things together. Yet, Lord, uh, let us uh, do each of them with a humble spirit. God, never uh, patting ourselves on the back for the good that we do, but God, recognizing that any good that we do is from faith and by the power of Your Spirit. God, we pray that You are glorified amongst us this morning. God, we pray that we are edified. And God, we pray that even as these... Uh, beautiful truths unfold before us, Lord, that the same things would be true at Redemption Hill this morning as they gather in Hickman. God, we pray that you would continue to refine that congregation, Lord, that you would continue to bless them and their ministry to Hickman. And Lord, we pray ultimately, Lord, as we see your spirit work here and there, and that we would be reminded that though you're church gathers in many places. Lord, there is only one church. God, your church. And we pray that as we uh, celebrate this truth, God, we would uh, be humble there as well. God, recognizing that uh, as much as we may invest ourselves in each other's lives, as much as we may seek uh, to minister your word in your power, God, that uh, we are simply stewards of your grace. And so, Lord, we pray that we would steward your grace well this morning for your glory and for the building of Christ's church. In his name we pray. Amen. I, uh, I promised myself that we wouldn't take a real long tangent at this point, but I am going to indulge myself with a little tangent. Uh, verse 22, uh, you know, I've said uh, several times that uh, part of our congregational life together is very much informed by Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 15. And 1522 is uh, kind of one of the places that informs our congregational life. And it's important that we don't push this verse farther than it goes uh, because it doesn't really give us a lot of specifics, uh, but it does give us enough detail to think, uh, or that it should, I think, inform the way that a congregation lives together, right? James uh, or Luke never gives us kind of, this is how they made the decision, right? We left off in 21 with James kind of speaking his piece, and then the way Luke relates the story, apparently when James speaks, everybody just says, okay. 
and alluded to the fact last week that James probably has that uh, has that authority, not because James is the bishop or something, but James has kind of taken a primary role as the leader of the Jerusalem church, but also everyone, Jew and Christian, recognize James is an incredibly pious person who is on principle conviction uh, keeping the law of Moses, though he is professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In fact, uh, Josephus and Eusebius, two like, uh, historians not long after this time, both say that uh, everybody in Jerusalem, even the non-Christians, all recognize James the Just as an incredibly pious and uh, law-observant Jew. And so uh, Luke uh, you know, just says, James says, and then the church decides. And it's probably like the force of James, uh, both being a leader uh, in the Jerusalem church, being Jesus' uh, half-brother, but also the fact that everybody in the room recognizes James isn't standing to gain something here. James doesn't want to be freed from the law of Moses. Like if the Jerusalem council goes his way, finally I can eat pork, right? Like James is a guy who's going to follow the law regardless on principle conviction, but he is uh, stating very clearly that we should not lay the requirements of circumcision or the law of Moses on the Gentiles. And people respect the fact, I think, that, that James isn't saying this out of personal interest. He is saying what he's saying out of love for the church of Jesus Christ. And so, after James speaks, Luke picks up uh, that it seemed good to everybody. Okay? That's what we're deciding. And so, the apostles and the elders, uh, together with the whole church. Right? The apostles and elders seem to make the decision at the Jerusalem Council, but then they invite the church, the, the broader church, to select men to send to Antioch with the conclusion that the elders and apostles have come to. Right? And so uh, the apostles and elders essentially make the theological judgment at the Jerusalem Council, but the congregation is involved in assenting to who should be entrusted with this crucial message. And that is why we, as a church, have elders who are leading us, helping guard the theology of the church, direct the priorities of the church, and at the same time, we think that members are absolutely essential for assenting to the character of the men who are leading to the church. Right? The, the church is led by the elders, but ultimately some authority finally rests with the congregation uh, as a whole to, to determine who those leaders are are those leaders people who reflect uh, the character of Christ and who are capable of leading the church well? And so the church together decides, along with Paul and Barnabas, we're going to send two other people whom we eminently trust in order to carry this word back to Antioch. And they settle on Judas Barsabbas and Silas. Judas Barsabbas, we don't know really anything about this dude other than what is indicated in this passage. He's apparently a pretty good teacher, and he's also a prophet. Uh, and he was born on a Saturday. Barsabbas means son of Saturday, uh, son of the Sabbath. So he's probably born on a Saturday. Uh, Silas, we're going to come to know much better. Uh, Silas uh, ends up going with Paul on the second missionary journey, and, 
He's mentioned several times in the epistles. Uh, But for now, I think it's important we understand the church in Jerusalem, again, like we saw in chapter 11, isn't saying like, okay, uh, who are two people we're not going to miss? Let's send those people to Antioch, right? They're, they're picking people who are invested in the church, who are they're confident that these men are of good character and are capable teachers to go explain exactly what the letter means to the church in Antioch. And uh, then there is the letter. And the letter is essentially the argument that we saw James make last week, uh, but I think Uh, there is uh, some important detail to note here. First is how the letter is introduced. Uh, Notice uh, the apostles don't say like, hey, I understand there's a disagreement, so we're going to assert apostolic prerogative here and tell you exactly what you need to do. Like, probably, at least the way I understand the apostles' authority in the church and the way Paul's authority is asserted in other places that was their prerogative. They could do that very thing, but instead of uh, lording their authority over the church in Antioch, they essentially plead with Antioch. Like they, they open the letter by putting themselves on the same level. They don't say, hey, just so you know, we're apostles and this is what we've decided. They've, they introduce themselves as brothers, like we are your brothers, uh, the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, to the brothers. Uh, in these Gentile places, right? Like, same plane. This is, a, this is probably as much of a plea as anything. Like, we're, this is what the Spirit has led us to, and we want you to affirm it. And so, I don't think you should read the Jerusalem Council as like one church asserting a, uh, authority over another church, but one church uh, making the determination that they think... Uh, is most helpful to the progress of the gospel and pleading with other churches to accept that very thing. And uh, as they, they make their plea or introduce their plea, they clarify what exactly is, has happened in their estimation. Right? They want to be very clear that, hey, those guys that came up to Antioch and started saying, you got to be circumcised, you got to obey the law of Moses, we want you to know, like, we didn't send those guys with that job. They just decided that they were going to do that. They were free agents, kind of loose cannons, right? Like you can see in this letter, they don't do anything necessarily to criticize the guys who did this, but they're also very clear that those guys weren't, uh, weren't delegated by us to do anything. And I think they, they find, a, they, they walk a razor's edge between like, uh, rebuking, uh, I think, the action of those people without uh, necessarily rebuking the conviction that uh, as a Jewish Christian, I'm still obligated to keep the law of Moses or it's best for me to keep the law of Moses. It, I, it's, the letter is incredibly conciliatory overall. Uh, but we understand that these guys coming Uh, prompted some disruption in your congregation, and we had no intention to do that. Uh, And so we've discussed the matter. Paul and Barnabas explained everything to us. And now we, the church in Jerusalem, are of one mind, and we're sending some people back to you uh, with this letter to help explain some of the details. Uh, And then further, they note, uh, our beloved Paul and Barnabas, 
right? Like, I think uh, probably the intention here is uh, we're sending you this letter with some additional instructions, but it is, it is essentially an affirmation of the gospel that Paul and Barnabas have already been preaching to you, right? And Paul and Barnabas are trustworthy in character, evidenced by the fact that they are willing to lay their life down for the sake of the progress of the gospel, right? Which is essentially an exhortation we'll see scattered throughout the New Testament that uh, you know a good teacher by the way that they live. And uh, the way that uh, Paul and Barnabas are living should be an affirmation to you of their character. But we're also going to send Judas and Silas. They don't say uh, much about them, just that their job is to further explain the letter. Uh, and then uh, the, the heart of the letter. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Right? So we believe that the Spirit has led us to this. We're in agreement that, that there are some things that we're going to ask you for. Uh, there are actually four things that we're going to ask you for. Uh, number one, that you abstain from meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Uh, Paul talks about this at length in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, but basically, uh, people of Gentile persuasion would be very, very, very used to a life where uh, you, meat you bought in the market was associated with idol worship, but in addition to that, uh, you pretty regularly uh, would, um, you know, it was like a Friday night fish fry in Nebraska. Like, you would go to the temple, some meat would be sacrificed to the idol, and then there at the temple or at a building attached to the temple, you would, with other people, share a meal where you consume the meat that had just been sacrificed to the idol, and that was all understood to be a part of the worship of that idol, and essentially, like, you're implicitly pledging allegiance to that idol. And so, uh, of course, this would be highly offensive to Jews, uh, right? But, like, uh, it wouldn't be all that weird to uh, Gentiles. Like, it's just all that they've ever known. And probably for a lot of Gentiles, uh, it wouldn't, it would feel probably as much social as it would religious, right? Like, it, that's just what we do. Like, that's, that's where I see my friends. That's what we do. Probably, you know, I'm a Nebraska fan, but every time I go to Memorial Stadium, I think there's some Nebraska fans here, and then there's some crazy idolaters here, right? Like, like going to a Nebraska game isn't necessarily participating in idolatry, but there are a lot of idolaters in the stadium with you, right? Like, uh, it's just what you do. And uh, so, to be clear, the Jerusalem Council is saying, like, that has to stop. Can't do that. Like, please, please, please stop doing that. Uh, if you're going to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't have anything to do with also pledging allegiance to idols. Like, whether that's why you're there or not, stop it. Uh, also, these two are, I, I'm just going to combine into one because they're basically the same. Stay away from blood and don't eat animals that have been strangled. And the reason uh, I'd say these two are together is because Jews understand, like God says, the life is in the blood. And Jews came to understand that any consumption of blood or any consumption of meat that 
hadn't been properly drained of blood was an offense to God. And so uh, if an animal was strangled rather than butchered and bloodlet, uh, it was as defiling to a Jew as touching a corpse would be, right? Like, that's inappropriate. And so uh, while uh, Jews would never do that, Gentiles had no problem uh, eating blood or uh, meat that had been strangled. Uh, kind of like, you know, uh, some of us probably uh, would uh, never really consider these things like, what's the difference, uh, right? And some people would think, like, that's, that's disgusting. Like, I, I would never do that, right? Like, probably for most Gentiles, it was understood as a matter of preference. For Jews, like, there are serious connotations about the consumption of blood or meat that is contaminated with blood. And then finally, uh, sexual immorality. And this one's a little bit more complicated, but I would point out to you, I guess, first, that in chapter, verse 29, you basically have an extreme conden, uh, condensing of everything that's in Leviticus 17 and 18. Right? Le- where Leviticus 17 and 18, Moses lays out what a resident alien needs to do in order to live in Judea. Right? Like, if you're not Jewish, but you're living in Judea, what, do you, what parts of the law of Moses do you need to keep? What parts are you not expected to keep? Uh, these are all things that are found in the provisions of Leviticus 17. And 18. And in Leviticus 18, there is uh, an extended commentary on like who you can or cannot have sexual relationships with, or who you can be married to, really. Uh, right? Like uh, your mother's sisters, whatever, and you, you, uh, maybe you don't remember that part. You can just go read it. Uh, like there's all like people that you're not like necess- well, directly related to, but also maybe some people that Jews would consider like you're closely uh, related to this person enough so that you cannot be married to them and Jews and Gentiles would have different understandings of like what actually is incest like how closely can related to someone can you be and still marry them but also uh, the Gentiles are um, probably mostly in places where there's at least one temple where in addition to the meat thing, there's also a lot of cultic prostitution. Like, you would go to a temple, engage with a prostitute who worked for the temple, and that's part of the worship of that idol, that deity, right? And so, uh, I said last week that that one has to do with idolatry. Like, probably a lot of what they're trying to, the behaviors that they're trying to capture with sexual immorality are things uh, not necessarily that everybody would agree or like that is sexual immorality, but areas where Jews and Gentiles kind of differ in defining what exactly is sexually immoral. Uh, yet the word that they use is porneia, like it's the general term for sexual immorality. So like it is a prohibition of sexual immorality, it is definitely that, but uh, Jews and Gentiles disagree about what sexual immorality is, and so, hence, I think, sending Judah, uh, Judas and Silas along with this letter to help explain, like, when we say sexual immorality, this is what we mean, uh, which I assume would be as awkward for Judas and Silas as the last few minutes have been for me. Uh, but... <laughs> They lay these four things out, uh, 
as, uh, you know, they are requirements, but the tone of the letter is very much like a pleading pastoral tone. Uh, and they say, like, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, right? Like, uh, basically, this is, these are the things we really want from you. Uh, please do this. And so writing this letter, they send it out. Uh, they make their way down to Antioch, up to, north to Antioch, down elevation. Uh, and they gather everybody together. Notice again, the whole church, uh, right? They don't give the letter to the pastors and say, hey, you explain this to everybody. But th- like, they understand that this is a whole church matter. It affects everybody. Like The whole church needs to come together in agreement on this point understand what what we're being asked and and understand why understand Judas and Silas's explanation Uh, and so they read the letter to the congregation and the congregation's response is rejoicing because of the encouragement right and it's a little bit weird is for most churches if you wrote a letter saying uh, hey I know you're doing these four things you need to stop the church would like that would be a downer Right, like, oh man, I, that why we don't like people telling us what to do, right? Like that's basically it. Nobody likes being told what to do. But the church's response on the Jerusalem Council pleading with them to start doing something they're not doing or to stop doing something they are doing is not discouragement. It's not frustration. It's rejoicing, right? And I I think that that's probably rooted in three different things. Uh, number one. Uh, Remember the context of the Jerusalem Council. They had initially heard the gospel is salvation by grace through faith. Repent and turn to God in faith and you will be saved. And then later on, some guys come in and say, okay, okay, that's, that's a good start, but you also need to do these things in order to really earn God's favor or really have God's approval. Right? Like, those are the stakes. And so... Uh, on hearing, no, the Jerusalem council is clear. Like, you don't have to obey the law of Moses. You don't have to be circumcised. Like, in their judgment, the gospel that you heard from Paul and Barnabas is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation is truly by grace through faith. Like, there, there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Like, that certainly would be a cause for rejoicing. I think... Uh, Probably also, uh, you know, they are rejoicing because uh, things have been tricky in Antioch. Unlike most of the other Gentile churches, and this letter we'll see in chapter 16, this letter ends up getting to Galatia, where Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey. But for now, Antioch is a city where there is a sizable portion of the churches of Jewish persuasion or Jewish background, and a sizable proportion is Gentile. And they've probably already had quite a bit of difficulty like figuring out how exactly is congregational life going to go. And so some news from the believers in Jerusalem, like, hey, we're going to suggest these things, these accommodations for you Jews and Gentiles to live together is a cause for rejoicing. Like, maybe we can have some peace where there has been tension or conflict. Uh, But finally, I think probably they're rejoicing because uh, like, the tone of the letter. Like, it, we're not lording it over you, and we're not demanding that you do anything. We're a sister church pleading with you to help us preserve the unity of the church 
by making some accommodations. We're going to make some accommodations. We're not going to require things of you that God's not requiring of you, but we're asking you to be accommodating to some of the things that by conscience we deeply feel are wrong. And Judas and Silas not only uh, communicate this, I assume, uh, assume lots of town hall meetings, lots of question and answer sessions, but they're also prophets, and so they encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. Uh, they spend a, a significant amount of time there, and then they go back to the church in Jerusalem. And it's at this point uh, that I'd, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to point out uh, that you're going to have a hard time, probably most of you, depending on which translation you use, finding verse 34. And I told you the last time we came to this in the book of Acts uh, that I felt like this was an important conversation for us to have, and I still feel like it's an important conversation for us to have. I didn't make a mistake. I used the ESV, and the verse 34 is not in the ESV. And... Uh, that's an uncomfortable truth if you've never heard it before. The first time somebody points something out like that to you, it's a little bit unsettling, and I'd rather be the one who does it than have you uh, uh, hear that from somebody who is uh, attacking the integrity of Scripture. I certainly have no interest in that. Uh, verse 34 is another example of... Uh, a verse that made it into the earliest English translations. Uh, and it was not, uh, or is not, probably original uh, to the letter that Luke wrote. Uh, now, uh, the reason for that, I'll say, I guess, shortly, uh, is uh, when, the early, when we first started translating the Bible into uh, lingua franca, like, English, German, common language. Uh, we didn't have many Greek manuscripts, precious few, and the people that had them weren't really all that willing to share them with people who wanted to translate the Bible into the common language. Uh, and so they did the best that they could with what they had, but portions of the New Testament weren't even translated out of Greek. They were translated out of Latin because we didn't, at that time, even have a Greek manuscript for portions of the New Testament. Uh, however, since then, uh, archaeology became a thing, uh, and we've found thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Greek manuscripts, a, a virtual mountain of Greek manuscripts, and most, most of them much older than any manuscripts we'd have previously. This has all happened within the last hundred years or so. And... Scholars have put together uh, those manuscripts and noticed one of the things they've noticed in the, all of the old manuscripts, there was no verse 34. Uh, verse 34, if you don't have it in your Bible, says something along the lines of, but Silas stayed, or I don't, something like that. Uh, and at some point, somebody probably helpfully noticed uh, that uh, chapter 16, Silas is back in Antioch. And so they were trying to resolve, I think, I assume, trying to resolve the tension of, like, wait, uh, here at the end of chapter 15, Silas is going to Jerusalem, but then in chapter 16, Silas is back in Antioch. That doesn't make sense. Uh, and so they, they insert this note to explain how Silas is still in Antioch. I, I don't know uh, 
It certainly seems, with the way that uh, time elapses, it, it seems entirely plausible to me that Silas goes to Jerusalem and then for whatever reason decides to return back to Antioch. But uh, verse 34, uh, I think, was somebody's attempt to help, but it wasn't in the original. Uh, a letter to uh, Theophilus, uh, the original book of Acts. And... Uh, I say all this, especially to the, the people in the room who are younger and maybe have less experience with the Bible, because I think it's, it's absolutely important uh, that you understand uh, that you have every reason to trust the Bible in front of you. Uh, well, that hasn't always been... Uh, there have been portions of the history of the church when the Bible was first being translated in the common languages that uh, that wasn't necessarily the case and no one knew that that wasn't the case that now there is a mountain of historical data that indicates that the Bible in front of you reflects the letters that were originally written and it is absolutely trustworthy however as a as a church, uh, you know we we need to. Uh, I think we need to accept the fact and uh, help shepherd people through questions about the Bible's integrity. And so I bring this up not because I want to unsettle you, but because I want to assure you that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. And so. If you hear this and you think, I don't know that I can trust my Bible, like, I'm a nerd and I love talking about things like that. Like, I'll talk to you about that for hours on end. Just text me and I'll say, let's talk. Uh, like, I absolutely want you to know uh, that your Bible is entirely trustworthy and I would be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, but I don't think the path to getting you to trust your Bible is just ignoring inconvenient truths. Uh, and so, please, if you don't think your Bible is trustworthy, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders. If you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I have like 50 books about this. I'd be happy to loan you any of them or all of them. But uh, I say this uh, is I want you to know that your Bible can be trusted. Uh, Luke continues, in verse 35, that Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Right? This has been an incredibly productive partnership, and it continues to the benefit of the church in Antioch. And I think uh, you, can, you can read all of chapter 15, read the Jerusalem Council, and be like, well, that's a super interesting incident in the history of the church. Like, glad everything worked out and people are still friends, but I don't really know like what it has to do with me uh, because like I, I'm not planning to go home and like uh, boil an animal in its own blood or like uh, you know eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Like those aren't those aren't temptations that I deal with. That's not really a part of the way that we live in Bennett. Uh, you know, like this is. This is a, a thing of the past. And I think that if you, 
you walk away from Acts chapter 15 thinking it, it has little relevance for us today, you're going to miss the point of Acts chapter 15. Like, while those things were specific to the sort of idolatry that they were dealing with in the first century, uh, I think our dealing with idolatry looks different, but pretty much prompts exactly the same issues that the church was then wrestling with. And I think probably that our identity as uh, Americans contributes uh, to some of the specific forms of idolatry that we deal with uh, and the effects that they have uh, on the church. And I would, uh, I guess I would suggest to you first uh, that like the headline of the Jerusalem Council really is uh, the church in Jerusalem is surrendering deeply held personal conviction about uh, the observance of the law of Moses for the sake of the gospel's continued progress amongst the Gentiles. And at the same time that they're willing to surrender some of their convictions for the sake of the progress amongst the Gentiles, they are pleading with the Gentiles to make some accommodations themselves in order to help the church like live in a truly united way. Like, uh, not just uh, pretending like there isn't conflict, but like truly how do we live in unity and display the unity that Christ has bought with his blood? Uh, like they're, they're suggesting these are some things that you could do to be uh, sensitive to Jewish convictions. And like the resolve is maintaining the integrity of the gospel, yet like practically finding some way that uh, very different people can live together in peace. And I would, uh, I would suggest to you that uh, their problem isn't exactly our, our problem. Their solution isn't actually all that helpful for us, but the pattern of Acts 15 uh, is incredibly helpful. And I, I would suggest to you that uh, in order to utilize the pattern, we have to first identify what, what the problem is. And while there are any number of problems, I would suggest probably that the most common, in my opinion, are number one, as Americans and maybe just as people, uh, you know, like we have a rugged sense of individualism, we have a pretty strong confidence that we're always right, and our idolization of our own opinions or our judgments uh, is a big problem for the church, right? Like, it's a big problem for the church. Uh, like, I could probably ask uh, anyone in this room, and everyone has an opinion about like, do we support the right missionaries? Should we support more missionaries? Should we focus more on local outreach? Should we focus more on evangelism? Or should we focus more of our time and attention on discipling the children in the room? Or, uh, you know, what color should the church's carpet be? Right? <laughs> like, uh, is the music too old? Is it too new? Like, is it too fast or too slow? Every one of you has an opinion about all kinds of things. I have an opinion about all of those things. Uh, old or slower, that's, that's the opinion. Uh, my opinion. Uh, and I don't think that any of those opinions, well, some of the opinions are probably wrong, <laughs> but having your opinion is not wrong. Uh, it's the strength with which you hold that opinion and 
the degree to which you're willing to sacrifice the unity of the church for that opinion that are a big problem. Anytime, uh, anytime we sacrifice the church's unity over an opinion or a personal conviction, like we are trying to tarnish the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the if if how many times in your life have you had to eat crow? Like find out that you were wrong. Like for everybody in this room, including me, if you have any life experience, you've learned yeah, I'm wrong. You know, I'm batting 500. Uh, like I'm wrong as much as I'm right and I only find out after the fact but life has taught me that my judgment isn't always that good and yet we would sacrifice something that God says is supremely valuable to him for a judgment that we've seen isn't all that reliable and, and in the same way but somewhat differently I would say that our, our freedoms are often basically the same thing like we idolize our freedom in a way that uh, ultimately jeopardizes the unity of the church, right? And, and most of the time, that it masquerades, I think, amongst American Christians, or at least American Christians of our bent, but with, the, with a phrase something like, no, oh, that's not a salvation issue. How many times have you heard somebody say that? Well, that's not a salvation issue, Right? Like, and it's true, there are things that are salvation issues, and it's true that there are things that are certainly not salvation issues, and it's true that there are a lot of things that, uh, there are a lot of things that you are free to obey personal conviction on, but it's true that there are a lot of other things that we act like, because they're not salvation issues, they're unimportant. At baptism, church membership, church attendance, serving in the church, fulfilling the one another commands in a small group, uh, using social media, not using social media, drinking a beer, right? Like, there are all these things that are like, well, that's not a salvation issue, so just whatever, it doesn't matter. Like, that is uh, extreme misappropriation of Christian freedom, right? Like, if you, if you have no category between this is a salvation issue and this is unimportant, then you need to get one now. There are lots of things that are biblically important that don't, salvation doesn't hang on them, but that doesn't make them unimportant. It, again, I, Scripture is the best commentary. Uh, Romans chapter 14, Paul is wrestling through this very thing with a congregation that's struggling with like Sabbath observance, new moon, like what, what do we do with this? And he says, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for everyone who thinks it's unclean. Right? If you think it's wrong, it is wrong for you, he's saying. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Right? So if, if you think it's wrong, it's wrong for you. If you don't think it's wrong, it's not wrong for you unless Scripture clearly says otherwise. But if it does offend your brother, don't do it. If you love your brother, stop. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. 
encouraging them towards a course of action that maintains, that defends the unity of the church. Be deferential to each other with the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ and so preserve the unity of the church. He says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, applying it to himself. And if you want to dig into this, like, Basically, 1 Corinthians is a commentary on, or half of 1 Corinthians is a commentary on the Jerusalem Council. From chapter 6 through chapter 10, Paul is wading through like sexual immorality amongst the Gentiles and what should be permitted, what should not be permitted, food sacrificed to idols, what about meat that had been part of idol worship. Uh, right? And in the course of that conversation, talking about the freedom that he has in Christ, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Right? I'm not a guy who is uh, choosing to use my freedom in Christ if it means I'm going to turn somebody else away from the Gospel. I use my freedom in Christ to see more people one to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that means I choose not to do things that I know that I'm free to do in Christ for the sake of someone else. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win more Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. He's talking about Gentiles. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win some and I do it all for the sake of the Gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. When we sacrifice the the unity of the church for freedoms that Christ has given us, we are tarnishing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what those freedoms were bought for. It's not what they're intended for. And I am certainly not suggesting to any of you that uh, your opinion doesn't matter. And I'm certainly not suggesting to you that uh, the freedom that God bought you in Christ Jesus isn't one of the greatest gifts that He's given you. It is. But I am suggesting to you in the strongest possible terms that any time that you let your freedoms or your political views or your opinions or your judgments uh, or or letting the, the marginal disagreement with another person divide the bride of Christ, the, the church that Christ bought with His own blood, you are uh, directly attacking the Gospel of Jesus Christ or something that was bought by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an affront to God. And There is one thing in one thing only that is worth sacrificing the unity of the church. And it will always, only, ever be one thing. If the truth of the Gospel is ever attacked, if it's under threat, if it's being undermined or impeded in any way, that then and only then can the unity of the church be rendered. Right? That uh, if it is at all possible to preserve the truth of the gospel 
and the unity of the church, that is the course of action. But at the point that it becomes impossible to preserve both the truth of the gospel and the unity of the church, when the truths that make the difference between heaven and hell are being attacked, then it is time for separation between the people who truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and the people who seemed like they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is the only time that the unity of the church shouldn't be one of our highest priorities. If it's, if it's something other than the gospel at stake, if it's your opinion, if it's your conviction, if it's your freedom to do or to not do something, uh, if it's anything else, then the unity of the church and the priority of the progress of the gospel have to be the thing that wins out. They have to be our priority. That's the note that the Jerusalem Council ends up striking. They preserve the integrity of the gospel and both sides are willing to make accommodation for unity in the church. Jews and Gentiles are incredibly different people. And they find this middle ground where they can live together in harmony and display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. One course certainly would have been, well, let's just have Gentile churches and Jewish churches, and they can do whatever they want to do, and both can hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that diminishes the beauty of the gospel. Part of the beauty of the gospel is displayed in diverse persons with diverse opinions coming together, and the unity that the gospel brings trumps every difference that the world could bring to the table that would otherwise divide people. That displays the power of the gospel for the world to see. How could two people that think that come together in one place? Those people never get along. Well, that's the power of the gospel of Jesus. And so the church chooses the course that preserves unity in the midst of diversity. And that that should always be our priority whenever possible. I pray that the Spirit that led them to this Spirit, uh, or led them to this course, is continually the spirit that's leading us as a people. People who prize truth, but prize the unity of the gospel and the, continu- the unity of the church and the continued progress of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for...